We are starting, though, with what has become a big battle in the Fraser Valley. First, there was the flooding that caused widespread damage. Now, we're hearing from a homeowner living on Fish Camp Road. That's in the Othello area near Hope. He says his main access road is gone and a temporary access road may soon be shut down as well. And that, with neighbours refusing to help, leaves him with no way to access his property. Well, Evan Bell is that property owner, and he joins us on the line now to talk more about this. Evan, thank you so much for being with us. Oh, thank you for taking the time to let me try to uh, explain things. Well, there's a lot going on here when we go all the way back to the flooding that we saw in that November and what's happened since then. So maybe start there and tell us what happened. Well, maybe first where your property is located and how it was impacted by that flooding. Okay, well, well our, our property is in Othello near Hope and the flood washed away our access to our home. It's uh, Fish Camp Road. And um, it, it, wrote, it washed away a section of it, and um, I was hoping that they would repair it after the, the flood, but I was informed by the uh, Fraser Valley Regional District and the Ministry of Transportation that it turns out to be a private road that crosses private land, so they will not repair the, the road. Um, which and they, I'm sorry. Sorry, just and and that seems a bit odd, doesn't it? Given that if you look at the history of that road, that road has been maintained using public funds, hasn't it? Like like any other road. Oh, it absolutely has. I've uh, at least for the first 15 years that I lived there, um, it was uh, graded and uh, paved and snow plowed. And clearly it was done with public funds. It was Emil Anderson, the uh, maintenance company, that did it. Um, and as far as I'm, I'm understanding is that if, if a public or even if it's a private road, if it's maintained with public funds, it becomes a public road. Now, um, the FBRD and Ministry of Transport says that it, w- it was a public road at one time, but that it was granted to the landowners along the road, uh, disregarding our property at the end of the road. Um, and, and yet the law says that once a, a road is public, it's, it's always public. Um, so I don't really understand why, why this has happened. Neither the FVRD or the Ministry of Transportation can tell me when this was granted to the owner, the landowner along the road. Um, but it was sometime in the past. And like you said, this was the access you had or, or one of the access points, the only one left, particularly after the, the flooding. So what does this mean for you then as far as being able to access your home? Well, at the moment, we're accessing through the Trans Mountain Pipeline access on the east end of our property, but that is going to be closed in a month or so, they tell me, and we will have absolutely no access to our home. 
And I understand you had reached a kind of a deal or, or had a, a, a verbal contract with the pipeline as far as what would happen with that road. So did that come as a bit of a surprise to you that they were saying that actually the access to that point is also going to be coming to an end? Well, I wasn't surprised that that access is going to come to an end because it passes through several neighbors' properties um, to get to my property. But I was uh, I was kind of shocked that they they said they weren't going to repair the road because when we were in negotiations, they told me that Fish Camp Road was going to be upgraded and they required an easement from me where Fish Camp Road enters my property for them to access with their machinery. Um, after the flood, they decided not to do that. They decided to uh, access from the other end of the property, um, despite having it staked and, and surveyed and, and everything. And, and they did a extensive work in the area of the, uh, the washout already. It wouldn't have taken much more for them to just repair the road. I mean, considering they were, it was gonna be a big job to rebuild the road anyway. Right. So so that's happening on the, on the one hand as far as that access and and the the agreement or or the fact that it's not they're they're not going to go ahead and fix Fish Camp Road. And then on top of everything else, I understand as well. This also has to do with you're trying to work with your neighbors and not really getting much uh, much kind of common ground that you're finding there. In fact, it seems like you have a couple of neighbors that aren't interested at all in being part of the solution. Yes, well, um, the neighbor to the south, uh, it's it's vacant land. It's it's zoned high hazard floodplain, so it's not likely to be ever used for much there. Um, there's a short, maybe 100 foot driveway that comes from Othello Road onto our property that's been used at least since, at least for the last 50 years because uh, I have another neighbor that was born on, on our property and that access has always been on our land. I assumed when I bought the property that it was an easement through her land, but she's decided she doesn't want us crossing her land and has had it gated, so we can't get in that, that way anymore. Um, uh, on the other side, the neighbor is the one that has um, Fish Camp Road crossing his land. Now, um, he had to build a new road himself to get into his property, so he doesn't want anyone else. He said it was at a, a, a very high expense to do that, and he doesn't want anyone else using his road. He also doesn't want Fish Camp Road repaired and just wants to keep that end gated as well. And I understand there's also been a court battle or, or this issue or issues connected to this have also been dealt with in court. What happened with the court case? Well, the, the court case was with the, uh, the lady that owns the property, the vacant land to the south. Um, I tried to obtain a, an easement called an implied easement or an easement of necessity but I failed in that attempt. I didn't meet all the prerequisites for, for getting an easement across her land. Uh, apparently, if you buy land and it's unencumbered, you are not required to let anyone else encumber your land, which I guess makes sense, but it's, <laughs> it's a problem. 
My guest is Evan Bell. Evan owns a property in the Othello area that's near Hope. And due to flooding, due to construction in the area and some changes in that part of the Fraser Valley, he is now facing a scenario where he is about to lose all access to his property. And Evan, I want to get into who might be able to help you with this. So as we know, this property is in the Othello area near Hope. So does it fall under the Fraser Valley Regional District or the Provincial Government Ministry? Or have you talked to anyone at this point about what could potentially be done? Yes, it's it's um, it's part of the Fraser Valley Regional District. And, and there is a Fraser Valley counselor that's been trying to be helpful in this in this case, his name is Peter Adamus, uh, and but he's running the same brick walls we are. I've I've hired two different law firms to try to help me with this without success. Um, I'm just I'm I'm kind of at my wit's end here. I don't I don't understand how a road can can exist that is our access that is our civic address. I pay property taxes for services that we're not not going to be able to get now. No fire ambulance or police will be able to get to us. Um, it, this just doesn't make a lot of sense to me. That that uh, a, you know a road can be uh, go from a public road to a private road um, without any consideration for for us. I mean our house has been there. My house has been there for probably 70 years or more, it was a, uh, the FBRD has told me there was a building permit issued for the, the house at the time. And, um, and it's, there's been houses on the property for, for quite some time, even when fish we first bought there, there was no other houses on fish camp road, just ours. So it, it just doesn't, doesn't make a lot of sense to me why, why this is how it is. And I understand, too, and and it seems like there's so much going on here, but also uh, you were asked, I, I guess, to prove that Fish Camp Road had been, in fact, used as a public road and, and that that had been the way it was in the past and that there there wasn't the documentation or, or it wasn't enough, at least to satisfy the ministry, that that was the case? Um, yes. The, I've been, I was asked by the law firm actually to try to prove it, and, and I said I had the law firm themselves try to prove that, but there's just there's just no records that, that we could obtain to to prove it. I mean, I I've been witness to the maintenance on the road there. Um, the people at the Ministry of Transportation told me that the FVRD traded off to do maintenance on Fish Camp Road with a with another road. Uh, they traded off with the District of Hope for uh, maintaining a road on one of the on the reserve there, and um, so there's people that work there that know that it was maintained, but I can't get any records to prove this. So as it stands now, Fish Camp Road, then the road that you had used to get access to your property, uh, what what state is it in, and is it is it? It's my understanding then that that it it is now actually a neighbor that owns this road. Yes, apparently it was granted to the landowner that owned the land before he purchased it at some time in the past. But the Ministry of Transportation, again, will not give me any record of when this happened. And And, and, you mentioned it's your house. How many people are we talking about that that will be in the same kind of state as you, that, that once that access is cut off, there will be no way to get to your homes? Well, there's just two houses on on my property now, um, and 
and um, I guess there, with the, the children and everything that live there, there's going to be 12, 12 people affected by this. And I, I mean, I, there's no entrance for the kids to go to get the school bus or anything anymore. And I, I thought I saw as well, too, one of the um, the solutions that was offered was, oh, well, maybe the, the something you can do is, is an install a helicopter pad. Well, that's what my first lawyer suggested after he, he researched everything. I said, well, you know, where can we take this next? What What is the next step? He, he said there really isn't one. You could buy a helicopter. <laughs> and that's about, about the only solution. But I, it just it just doesn't seem right to me. I look at the. The laws pertaining to public roads, and it, it, it appears to me, and I mean, I'm no lawyer by any means, but it, that if a, it says that a, if a public road is a public road, it is always a public road. You cannot make, uh, you cannot decommission a road from, from being a public road into a private road. And it also says if public funds are used to maintain the road, then it becomes, if it is a private road, it becomes a public road. So it just doesn't make sense to me that it's it, it can't be a that it isn't still a public road. Now there's a document I found on the Canadian Energy Regulators site that was submitted by Trans Mountain when when they had to submit everything for the pipeline, and it states clearly on that document that Fish Camp Road is a public road. Where they got that information, I I don't know. So what do you do now as far as trying to continue fighting and maintaining access to your home? Well, I'm right now I'm trying to hire another law firm. I've actually spoken to a lawyer and I have a, a meeting, uh, a, a video call with him tomorrow to see if he can come up with any other options for us. But so far, it's really not looking promising. Um, <laughs> I've got uh, the councillor, Peter Adamus, uh, talking to the Fraser Valley uh, uh, Council, uh, but I don't know that he'll be able to make any, any more headway with them than I have. Um, his intentions are good, but I, I, I think he's running into the same brick walls that I have. Well, we will certainly follow up and see what happens next with this. And Evan, let us know if there are any developments. But thanks so much for joining us and for telling us what's happening in with your house and with that access road. Well, thank you very much for uh, taking the time to listen to, to me. Thank you very much. Yesterday on the show, we were talking with Vancouver City Councillor Lisa Dominato. That was about the motion before council having to do with the empty homes tax in Vancouver and the idea of keeping it at 3% instead of bumping it back up or bumping it up to 5%. And she talked about some of the reasons for that, that there had been a report that suggested going to the 5% might lead to more tax evasion. So that motion passed, but there was also part of that motion that deals with empty homes and some of those exemptions we touched on yesterday. Well, joining us today is Mike Klassen, also a Vancouver City Councillor. Councillor Klassen, thank you so much for being here today. Good afternoon, Jill. Uh, so this is all part of that motion dealing with the home, the empty homes tax. Uh, can you clarify, though, I think the wording uh, it seems a little bit confusing in that did it actually go to 5% and it's being rolled back to 3 or was the plan that it was going to go to 5 and that's not going to happen? 
you're you're completely understandably uh, 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 in your confusion. I think a lot of us have the same question. Uh, there was a, um, a, um, a decision by the council last summer to move to 5%. Uh, but remember uh, that you don't actually collect, uh, collect the tax uh, until the following year. So and we're now into the 2022 tax year. And um, uh, based upon recommendations and the evidence that we've been presented, we've decided to stick with the 3%. That, and, and I think with good reason. Um, I read through the report that was supplied by uh, our outside consultant and by staff. And I think the, um, the reasoning around the 3%, knowing that we have the opportunity to raise it uh, later or have a graduated increase, depending on how long the properties are empty, will be available to us as well. And so that was approved and not a huge surprise that that part of the motion was adopted. But then we get into some of the exemptions and we did touch on this yesterday as well. So what are the exemptions or how does it change then as far as who will be still paying or who will have to pay this empty homes tax? So this uh, EHD has been a successful tool. One of the tools we have in our toolkit to try and make sure that we have more housing available and try to work towards more attainability of housing. Uh, but there were some uh, groups and individuals who are being caught in um, in the tax that uh, were evaluated and I think were rightly uh, should have been exempted. And to, just to give you an example, um, if, um, for example, you have an elderly parent who um, has to go into hospital or a long-term care home and you want to have the support of, a, of a, an adult child or a family member uh, who can stay in the home but doesn't live in the community, then they are able to stay there for less than six months because that's usually the case. Somebody might come and I have heard of examples of people are in and out of town, but they're not there for long enough and therefore those homes were um, having to pay the empty homes tax. So now we've created that medical exemption. Um, another uh, area that I was extremely pleased about, uh, I'd been sort of working with a constituent for, for months who was going to be paying $30,000 uh, for a missed payment in 2020. Um, she had uh, left the country to start a business and um, uh, through the correspondence between the province and the city, um, just ended up missing it. And um, even though she had sort of paid the following years, uh, she wasn't going to qualify. So now uh, a person can still um, uh, file um, and, and, um, and report their uh, empty homes, provided they've had the home occupied, as she did in her case, for up to five years. So that means um, that person is not going to have to pay that $30,000 and, and will just have to pay a late, uh, late filing fee. Um, there was another um, uh, exemption that, um, that I tabled a, a motion for um, that has been sort of out there, and it was about um, having a retroactive, um, <clears throat> a retroactive exemption uh, for uh, what's called standing inventory. And these, are, these are buildings that were built <clears throat> and opened in 2020, uh, 2022 and um, were unsold and as a result were, um, uh, got caught in the, in the tax as it was currently set up. So what we did is uh, council approved a one-time exemption for the 2022, uh, 2022 uh, 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 year. And um, <clears throat> this meant that the tax that was going to be collected for that will not apply. And um, I think it was the right decision. It, it aligns us with the, uh, the provincial guidelines uh, for, their, for the, spec- the speculation tax. They do not include standing inventory. Um, uh, so uh, basically brand new buildings that haven't been sold uh, yet or occupied yet. 
And um, and so that was a response to that. And the reason we want to do that is we want to make sure that we have as many uh, of our uh, people in the development community getting out there and building the housing supply that we need. Right. But that's the one that, that seems to be getting a lot of attention. So in doing that, in making it retroactive, does that not return or waive re- return and waive taxes owing of almost four million dollars? Uh, no, it's it's uh, yeah. I think it's about three point eight million. There's about two point four that have been collected, um, but it was uh, money that should have never been taxed, and it's money that should have never been collected. Um, this is business that probably should have been dealt with by the previous council and has been left for us to deal with. But the fact is, is that um, our goal right now is to try and make sure that we get as many people on the ground, making sure that we're getting the housing uh, built. Uh, we have uh, a finite supply of the people who can build at the scale that we have, and this particular tax um, uh, should have not been uh, put forward as it was. And um, and I think the, the right decision was made based on the evidence that we had. So, so why should this tax have not been collected? Um, the reason being is that um, we should not be we should not be uh, uh, collecting tax on this standing inventory. Um, the, the this you know some of the uh, arguments that we heard around it being COVID, there was a spike in the interest rates. Uh, the city had directed um, uh, these developers to build this type of housing, but uh, notwithstanding all of that, um, this is housing that uh, should be you know available on the market. And the more we end up driving up the costs through time delays and taxes, that doesn't get paid by the developer, and that's certainly not going to get paid by the banks. It's going to be paid for by home buyers and people who are going to obviously occupy and rent those those units as well. So I think the idea that we should just get going and get our uh, development community focused on uh, trying to get stuff, um, more housing built in the city is really the, the, the task at hand. Right. And, and that makes a lot of sense. I think just the optics of that look like we're talking about things that happen in a market where there's always a fair amount of risk and the risk level changes. And this this looks, though, that this decision is to refund and to help out developers who knew those risks going in. But now the city is stepping in to help them out. I think that the the, the tax, um, as it was put together, was probably not fully thought through in this one. It was a change that should have been made before. But the fact is, is that um, we have to get our uh, development community uh, to get out there and try and get more housing built because supply is one of our great uh, challenges right now. And we keep talking about this being a housing crisis, but we're not working at the pace that we should be. So uh, the city of Vancouver uh, staff have really one tool in their toolkit, which is to reduce the amount of time to get housing built. And that's what we're working uh, head down, try to make sure that that happens. And so moving forward, I know there was also discussion of, of the kind of a compromise that there would be a time limit when it comes to, to standing stock or things that haven't sold and whether or not they that those properties will be subject to the empty homes tax. Is that is that going ahead as well or was the, the time limit also not not approved? So the, 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 this 2022 is a one-time uh, exemption, and then so going forward, we're, we're going to be looking at this. I think the, um, that uh, we're going to be looking at, at all of these things back in next year in 2024, um, and, uh, and staff have been directed to come back with this with a possible graduated tax, which means uh, maybe going higher than the 3% uh, if the building is uh, unoccupied for longer time. So either like three years or five years, we're, we're asking staff to come back with some recommendations uh, to look at it. The, the goal here is to really make um, this 
tax, which really only is that, and so people know it doesn't go into general revenue. We're not allowed to use it to pay for roads and streets. The, the money that's collected only goes into non-market and social housing projects that are um, uh, being built by the city of Vancouver. And uh, after all of our um, cost of enforcement, we've raised about $115 million uh, since this tax is implemented. And uh, while that, um, in terms of development, is not a huge amount of money, um, some of those, some of that money can go to helping bridge the gap on for equity and other costs associated with uh, non-market and, and uh, social housing in the city. So that's why we think it's it's a good tax to continue, but it has to be that the right people have to be getting tax play. Right, and and I guess that's part of the reason I think why that particular motion that you brought forward raised a few eyebrows in that, like you said, the money raised goes to affordable housing, it goes to these housing projects, but instead that $3.8 million isn't going to go to those projects, it's going to go back to the developers. Well, I mean, I can just use the example of when we were out knocking on doors last uh, summer and fall, I went into neighbourhoods where there were uh, empty homes um, everywhere, and I was I was shocked by that. I Some of the neighbourhoods, they literally had you know, vines growing on the front steps because they were unoccupied and had been for so long. Those are the situations where we should be clearly uh, making sure that the uh, empty homes tax gets paid in those kinds of properties. And um, and that's the that's really justifiable. But when we've got new housing stock like this, um, we want to make sure that it gets out there so our uh, development community can really meet those goals. And uh, we're basically sending a signal. It's time for them to get to work, uh, work with the city, uh, because a lot of them are getting very disappointed with uh, working in the city of Vancouver, and we're trying to turn that around. And, uh, Councillor, I just wanted to ask you one other question about uh, the motion that Councillor Pete Fry with the Green Party bought, brought forward, and this was about tracking uh, dem evictions or tracking uh, the amount of people who are displaced along the Broadway project. I know that was not approved either. Do you have any concerns that we are going to see so many people displaced because of this project as it's continuing to go forward? Uh, people that really, there, there is nowhere for them to go. Um. Well, in, in fact, we have the, the best uh, tenant relocation rental uh, protection policies in North America and the city of Vancouver that we are going to make sure that are strongly enforced. Um, the uh, preference to projects, uh, we're now in the process of trying to define what are the projects we should be prioritizing. If there are um, developments that have a swing space and other places for people uh, to move into, uh, should there uh, be a, a building that uh, goes down, uh, those are the ones that are going to be giving preference, for example. Um, but I think at the end of the day, uh, Councillor Fry's motion uh, to a lot of us represented more delays and more dithering when we, and the, the real goal here is to try and get more housing built because we are in a housing crisis and we need to get to work and get housing built. All right, uh, Councillor Klassen, thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Thanks, Joe. Bye-bye. Well, we heard earlier today from the federal minister in charge of sport uh, saying that there is a plan, a slate of reforms, all aimed at addressing the safe sport crisis. Pascal Saint-Ange unveiled the measures, saying it will make national sports organizations more accountable for the federal funding they receive. She also addressed the issue of a public or a national inquiry into the country's sports culture. And just to be clear, I would like to reiterate my commitment and clear any doubts that may remain. I will respond to the requests from athletes and survivors for a national inquiry. 
this is a legitimate request and I'm working to be able to announce this as soon as I can. And again, those comments made as she was also unveiling a slate of safer sport reforms. Joining the show now to talk a bit more about this is Greg Galuli, lawyer, also Graham James assault survivor, author of I Am Nobody, Confronting the Sexual Abusive Coach Who Stole My Life. Greg, great to have you back on the show. Thank you for doing this. Oh, you're welcome, Jill. It's good to be here. These are, uh, again, it's a slate of reforms. The goal is to make national sports organizations more accountable. Uh, I don't know if you've seen all of the measures, but, but we'll go through a couple of them if we can. So it starts with a public registry of people sanctioned under the Universal Code of Conduct to prevent and address maltreatment in sports. What are your thoughts on that? Well, I mean, look... I'm happy any time positive steps are taken. So I'm going to give full marks to anyone who's doing anything to kick the ball forward here. I guess the question I have is, didn't this already exist? Like, why didn't this already exist? And I'm happy it exists now or will exist. But, like, let's give our heads a shake and simply ask ourselves – why have we been so concerned about the possible objections of people finding themselves on that list and, and their rights of privacy when what we're talking about is a group of people who've crossed the line to the point where they would have been sanctioned in the first place? Right. And I think that is likely the response from a lot of people, too, in that how did this, how was this not already a thing? Even in response maybe to things that have happened years ago, not that you need something to have happened to have this in place, but you're right. It seems like it would be a bit of a no-brainer. Yeah. And, and again, I don't want to, you know, throw water over things that are improvements, but I guess and I, I don't want to jump ahead of maybe what you're, you're going to head to with your questioning. How can we address the fundamental problems that exist out there without first identifying what the fundamental problems are out there through the national inquiry? And w- when you're going to have an inquiry, to say that you're working on a response about addressing the request to have an inquiry it, it, it just, it, it, it's mind-boggling to me why the government can't have already called that national inquiry. Right, because even that, that response, which was, we're working on a response, it's really nothing. It's not giving any information. It's not moving it forward at all. I think that there must be some level of concern out there about different national organizations that people in government know have, have done bad things, have failed, and that the government will be embarrassed through their ongoing funding, with having funded with the knowledge of mistakes, if you know what I mean. And so the government is trying to kick this out as far into the future as possible to avoid the embarrassment that they know is coming, and people are going to want to dot I's and cross T's and possibly... Uh, insulate themselves from criticism by having done good things first. But it it just doesn't make sense. Let's get everything out and on the table and then just tick the boxes one by one. This is not rocket science. This is not hard stuff to do. This is commonsensical approach to safety in sport. That's all it is. You and I could hammer out a list of things that, that should be done in all of these sports organizations within the half hour and go forward. 
Yeah, that's, uh, it seems very true. Uh, I want to ask you as well about non-disclosure agreements, because this is also one of the measures announced. It says non-disclosure agreements or non-disparagement clauses cannot be used to prevent athletes and other sport participants from disclosing abuse or harassment they've experienced or seen. And it says national sport organizations must adopt the Athletes Cans Athlete Agreement template. Will this make a difference? I think that it will. I, I Interestingly, I have a bit of a, a contrarian uh, position on this. I, I always think it should be left up to the victim whether or not the victim wants a non-disclosure agreement. And for whatever reason, a victim may wish to keep things quiet. And I do believe that it should always be a victim's right to have a non-disclosure agreement. What I think the, the rule should be is that no organization should be able to enforce a non-disclosure agreement against a victim. Right, because, and I guess that's because we do tend to focus on the victim when it's talking about a non-disclosure agreement, but it is really uh, maybe not an, an equal two-way road, but it is a two-way road. Yeah, and, and again, this is where I, I wish the government had called for the inquiry so that they could have received input on a broadly based uh, foundation to understand all of the issues. Uh, what What came out today to me, and, and again, I, I hate to be negative when positive steps are, ta- are being taken, right? Like, mm-hmm. we, we all want to encourage the government to take steps. So I, I hate to be the person saying, come on, you, you just screwed up. But come on, you, you just screwed up. <laughs> Call the inquiry, get the issues on the table, figure out what needs to be done, and do it. And, and uh, one of the other recommendations has to do with athlete, athlete representation. So it says athletes representation on an NSO's board of directors is mandatory. At least 40% of the board must be independent from the organization and no staff member can sit on the board. And there is a term limit of nine years. Do you think, is this one in direct response to Hockey Canada? I think it's in response to Hockey Canada and uh, what's going on in uh, the National Soccer Federations right now, because what, what we see happening in these organizations is entrenched business people are taking business opportunities for themselves uh, away from the sports organizations, especially with soccer. Like, like what's going on in Soccer Canada is, is just disgusting right now. Uh, what's going on with uh, the Hockey Canada Foundation behind the scenes, is it's just disgusting. Um, and and the, the limit on how long someone can be around, that's wonderful, right? You, you need board turnover. You need athletes having a voice so that the athlete's interest can't be subservient to the people running the business side of the sport. So that, again, is wonderful. Uh, and, and the government should absolutely be commended for taking these steps. And do you think they go far enough, though? And like you said, why not just call the, the public or the national inquiry, figure out exactly what it is that we are dealing with, and then address that? But, but in light of them not doing that, clearly, do these go far enough? No, it doesn't go far enough yet, right? And and that's always the problem. It's it's almost one step forward, two steps back, because with the non-disclosure agreements, they've potentially created a problem, you know, for a victim who, for whatever reason, wants a non-disclosure agreement. They've tried to do something good, but they haven't taken the time to look at what really needs to be done, so they've kind of gotten it wrong. With respect to the the board representation. They've taken good steps, but is nine years appropriate? And is that enough athlete representation? All the other things. We, we don't know. Uh, and th- this inquiry should have been called you know, a decade ago, two decades ago, three decades ago. 
And the fact that it's still not called is truly problematic. It, it speaks to what I can only assume is a fundamental concern of possible embarrassment going forward. Hmm. And one of the other ones, too, and again, financial statements, and my my guess is this is also very much linked to uh, Hockey Canada, but it says that NSOs must publish online their annual audited financial statements, board meeting minutes, and as well as annual reports on board diversity. Uh, your thoughts on that one? It's wonderful. The problem is that there are no rules that detail or set out the, the amount of detail that must go into those reports. Any organization can publish an audited financial report that leads to so many more questions than the report itself provides. Anyone can draft minutes of a board meeting that are are crafted in such a vague manner as to be virtually not even worth the paper they're they're written on or posted on. Uh, And and so it's great. It's wonderful. It's a, a government that has listened to, hey, this is a problem but they haven't had the inquiry to have people come in and say, it's more than just a problem. Here's what you need to do to get it right. And here's what's wrong. And let's take a look at this board uh, set of these minutes from this board meeting as an example of what could go wrong and why you need this and that and all of the stipulations that would go with that information. It's wonderful to promote uh, additional disclosure, to, to require additional disclosure, it's a failure not to go take the, the further step and require sufficient detail going forward. So again, it's one step forward, but with organizations thinking, oh, wow, we're, we're being unbelievably transparent now, it's two steps back because they no longer feel the pressure to actually be transparent because they will have, and I guarantee that they will hide the relevant information. Right. And isn't it a bit ironic as well that in the statement that was put out uh, by Minister of Sport, uh, Pascal Saint-Ange, uh, she, she talked about looking looking out for athletes' well-being as my top priority as Minister of Sport. But then it was the other line that I thought was, was a bit, uh, did not go with the answer she also gave about the National Inquiry in that she said, sports can't only be about medals and podiums. Athletes must have a greater voice at all levels of decision making. Yeah, and and so I, I have a lot of sympathy for the government when it when it comes to what the government's role in all of this should be. And the sports organizations devote so much of their budgets to the high end national teams and and development towards national team status. And that's in many ways why they were created in the first place in the seventies, coming out of the dismal performance of the Canadian Olympic team when we hosted in Montreal. The government faced a lot of pressure, the first house not to, to have a gold medal, and decided to take a more aggressive role in funding athletes. They, they tried in the lead-up to the Montreal Olympics in 76, and they really ramped it up uh, after uh, failing to secure a gold medal, to the point where these organizations should be towards broad-based physical fitness and participation across the country, and not so much uh, on, on the, the elite level of sport, and I, I, I try, I, I'm trying to be optimistic with respect to what was said there. I want to believe that that's the, the concept that the, the minister was, was trying to hit on, that the government isn't here to win gold medals. The government is here to build sport generally across the country. But to build sport across the country, you have to win buy-in across the country. And right now, what the government and these major sports organizations are lacking across the country is any form of trust. And, and so you're right. That's absolutely the problem here. 
All right. So it sounds like you said, as much as you don't want to be negative, this is moving in the right direction, but not nearly far enough. Yeah, I hate myself. I've become an old curmudgeon, right? Like I used to be such a young, wide-eyed optimist thinking the world was great. And, and I've, I've just, I've seen this too many times now. I, I want to think uh, that things will get better. I firmly believe that things will get better, but I, I can't help but be disappointed that there hasn't been the, na- the call for the National Inquiry right now. All right. Well, we will uh, wait and see if that changes. Greg, as always, thank you so much for coming on the show. Oh, you're very welcome, Jill. Thanks.